Hi, I'm Jill. And this is Mel. And welcome back to Mel and Jill Geek Out. And today we're on part one of A Court of Mist and Fury. So Mel's going to... Well, I guess we should have a little chat first before... I, I know. We have to warm ourselves up. So enjoy the banter, folks. Um, how are you? How are, how's life? Good. Good. I'm tired. Trying to emotionally recover from seeing Barbie. Yeah. So Barbie's probably going to be our next episode. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about it. I spent the day reading our next section of Fourth Wing, and I'm really, really excited for Jill to get to where I'm at uh, and learn the things that I have learned and my ever-expanding notes on my notes app on my phone about all of my thoughts. <laughs> I I have been typing them in the Kindle notes and like highlighting things and that's where I'm keeping it. But then I have to like immediately go and type thing it, type, type it out. Yeah. I just email my note to myself and then just copy and paste it into our shared document. Cause I am a cheater, McCheat cheat, but I'm also reading the physical book. So it's a little, I don't have the ability to digitally notate and I cannot, I know it's my book. It belongs to me. I cannot bring myself to write and notate in my book. I don't understand I, people who do that. I, mm -mm. I'm, I'm so proud of them because they have like these little relics of the first time they've experienced that book. But I feel like I need like a pristine copy and then I'd have like a junk copy that I write in. I think the one exception to this is probably textbooks. But I don't think I've ever even highlighted in them. I don't know. Did you do that? No, I was a weirdo. I would trans, I would write it in a, I, I would take like Cornell notes essentially. So I would write them in a spiral notebook and I would have like that all highlighted and insane because I was very hyper organized. Her written notes, they are absolutely gorgeous. I like, I don't know how she does it because if I tried to do it, I would start with like a gross copy that I've written and then go back and do the pretty colors. But my luck, I would have to start over about 15 times because if it wasn't perfect, <laughs> I would have to redo it. Yeah, I just somehow magically achieved perfection the first time around. I know. It's it's infuriating sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, so I, that, that's why my notes and her notes are going to be a little bit different because I'm like, I will read a chapter and then just type out all of my, like, I'm also doing like the timeline of events because like some of these more recently released books, like I'm not expecting to find a timeline of fourth wing on the internet that isn't going to also contain spoilers as we are reading yeah. through it. So I'm also building what the timeline of events are at the same time as I'm recording my reactions to what's going on in the context of the book. So I'm pulling a lot of double, triple duty on these notes, but it's, it works out in our favor. Yeah, I, I agree. There's definitely, especially because we read these, what, like a month ago now, probably. Yeah. When it comes to the, the Akatar books, it's been a hot minute and I'm probably, when we go, I am going to make you read Throne of Glass since I recently finished that. Um, and I'm taking a mild, mild SJM break. I'm going to read Happy Place by Emily Henry first, and then I'm going to jump into Crescent City. But I'm probably going to have to do the same thing because like I remember everything, but it is an eight book series that I did a tandem read on. I mean, you could always start over. I mean, but that might be a lot. A lot. But like, then I'm not going to hit my Goodreads goal. No, reread counts. Reread counts, but I don't know if I need to reread them in that quick succession. I remember it's, I read, it is actively the end of July and I read Akamath in like May, June. And I still remember more details. She has a much better memory than I do. Mine is like a goldfish. I can't remember a 
thing. And actually, we were going to try something slightly different for this episode. <laughs> it was not. <laughs> Jill did not remember. No, because like I remember these things happening, but it's the details surrounding it that I don't remember. So I got to be a little bit more prepared next time. I'm just a hyper detail oriented person because I feel like the interesting conversation lays in these details because like when you're talking about a fictional universe, the hope is that the author or the director or the writer, whoever is creating the fictional universe is creating something that has a lot of intention behind it. So nothing in there is accidental. I'm going to be a firm believer that there isn't a coincidence in a fictional story. It is, oh, if it is a quote coincidence, it's contrived to be that way. It is not truly a coincidence. Everything on that page matters for either now, near future, or distant future. I mean, in the sense that, like, the writer is writing it, yeah, there's no coincidence, but I think that sometimes they write it into it for the audience. Editing Melissa here. This is your official spoiler warning. If you have not read A Court of Mist and Fury or are not familiar with the Akatar series, please pause and come back later. This is your final warning. Yeah, we're going to jump into it. Okay, so we are going to talk about A Court of Mist and Fury. This got released way back in April of 2016. So this also has been out for a while. Um, and we're going to only talk about part one, which is the House of Beasts in this episode. So we're going to do we're going to split it up because Akamath is pretty long. These books don't get shorter unless you talk about Frost and Starlight. Yeah, we just want to we want to go in here. So we're going to open up Akamath and it is uh, a few months. It's three months after the events that concluded Akatar and off page Tamlin and Favor have gotten engaged. Ianthi, who is this high priestess of the Spring Court or high priestess of Prithian, has come to the Spring Court to sort of build some allyship with Tamlin. And we're jumping into kind of where Favorite Tamlin and Lucian are, are at right now. Um, Favorite is not having a good time. No, she is experiencing a lot of nightmares from what she went through under the mountain with with Amarantha and she's physically ill constantly but the good thing is we did learn that Prissian has plumbing and toilets because that was not clear Tamlin is not living in Feyre's room but he is sleeping with her every night he does not notice she's getting up and vomiting her guts up every single night She's having some like severe PTSD going on and night terrors. It's a lot. I mean, you have to like willingly not see that. Yeah, I think he's intentionally not seeing any of this. And I think it's really interesting because like, let's be honest, Tamlin was also traumatized under the mountain. We have no idea what happened between him and Amarantha. We know that part of the reason why Amarantha created this curse is because she really wanted to get together and hook up with Tamlin. And he was like, no, thank you. The probability of Tamlin getting sexually assaulted by Amarantha, considering she was we, we will later find out in this very book. She was already doing that to Reese is very probable. So like who the hell knows what Tamlin had to go through beyond also watching the woman he loved, whether you believe it, they really loved each other or not, go through literal hell and essentially not really be able to do a lot about yeah. it. And Lucian too. I mean, Lucian yeah. was like almost right there with Feyre through a lot of things. Absolutely. Like all three and of them were severely traumatized. I would really love for there to be like some psychotherapy, some therapists in Prithian. They all could use some. And Tamlin is being hyper controlling. He, Feyre wants to try to go and help the village nearby because it was kind of messed up from Amarantha and he won't let her leave because of her quote safety. And when he does let her go, no one lets her do anything because she's like his fiance. And instead of being like, hey guys, she's just treat her like a human or treat her like a normal person. He's just like, no, you have to stay in the house. And you're so scared of losing something. You just suffocate it. You know, and that's what he's doing, and and he doesn't realize it. 100%. Um, Tamlin and Lucian keep taking off to, like, take care of business 
essentially I'm assuming there's still like Naga and maybe a bog or two still in the spring court. We don't really know. I have sup- suspicions that this early on, Ianthe was probably manipulating them into meeting with people from Highburn. And that's part of where they were going. And what they were doing. Probably. So favors alone a lot. And yeah, Tamlin's trying to a certain extent because like he gives her a new paint set, but she literally can't will herself to paint because all she can see is what happened to her under the mountain. I really feel for Feyre. I think she's, I guess she clearly has PTSD, but I also feel like she is clinically depressed. The thing that I keep seeing from, from Feyre in this period is that she doesn't want to be alone. She's trying to build a friendship with Ianthe because she's under this impression that Ianthe is this priestess. She somehow magically escaped the wrath of Amarantha, probably because she was working with Amarantha. We didn't talk about how we feel about Ianthe. <laughs> Amarantha is to Voldemort that Umbridge is to Ianthe, in my humble opinion. I hate Ianthe. I know you do. I know. I like, I don't, I hate her too. I don't think I hate her as much as you do. I don't know if I would put her on umbrage level, but I, I get where you're going with it. I, I, like she needs to be on an episode of How to Catch a Predator. Yeah. She is terrible, horrible person. I love what happens to her in Akawar. Favor does have this conversation with Tamlin at one point, And she's like, so when we get married, am I going to be like, hi, lady? And he's like, no, hi, ladies are like, not a thing. You're just going to be my wife. That was like super annoying, but you know, as, as it happens in books, I'm sure it's one of those foreshadowing. Are we surprised? Absolutely not. I feel like Tamlin is a really good representation of like toxic masculinity. Like he leans into anger super hard. He's really controlling. He has this like picture in his mind of what he wants Feyre to be and is refusing to acknowledge that A, she's not a weak little human anymore. She's literally a high fae with unknown power at this point. No one knows. She doesn't even really know. And she's very capable of taking care of herself even when she was a human. Like she literally took care of her entire family until he kidnapped her. They don't see it that way. No, I know. He, he, yeah. he, like, I feel like mm, hot take Tamlin would be an Andrew Tate stan. Oh, mom. Probably. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> it feels like incel type behavior. Hope in, in the future. Like, I say that, but like deep down, like, I don't want anyone to be like that. And eventually like shit goes real bad for him. So I I hope at some point in the series, we get some kind of redemption arc. I definitely feel like we're going to. I feel like, it, you know, if we're talking about Akatar as a whole, and we'll have a whole episode about this eventually. I feel like there's there's indicators and things that show that Tamlin is eventually going to get a redemption arc, but we're not there yet. So we're gonna we're gonna continue forward. So none of us have forgotten about this bargain that Feyre made with Resand, where she's supposed to spend a week a month with him. He has not called upon her to do this for three months at this point. Yeah, for three months, he's just let her be in the spring court. Um, And she has been working with Ianthe to plan her and Tamlin's wedding. Uh, She does not seem interested in wedding planning. She doesn't have any input on her dress. She doesn't really care about location, flowers. The only input Feyre directly gives is that she does not want red rose petals. It's literally the only thing she says she wants. We get to their wedding and she's in this dress and she is having major, major, major cold feet. Like favorite. I'm shocked she got panic. She's panicking. She's having a full on panic attack. Oh yeah. And then she gets to the end of the aisle. She's trying to just focus on Tamlin and he looks all handsome in his green little tunic and Ianthe's there being fucking Ianthe. At the end of the aisle is fucking red rose petals. It took me a second when I read that. I was like, wait a minute. Didn't 
Didn't she say that that she didn't want that? Oh, I want to punch that bitch in the face. I hate her so much. So I 100% believe Ianthe very intentionally put these rose petals at the end of the aisle to fuck with Feyre and derail the marriage between her and Tamlin because she knew, like, Ianthe knew that Tamlin would not ever walk away from Feyre. He owed Feyre too much and he was as in love with her as he possibly could be. And Ianthe, we later find out, is a manipulative little cunt. Also a predator. Super predator. And I think Ianthe wanted to get with Tamlin. She wanted to marry Tamlin to be able to get a foothold in some court in the high, in Prithian to then be this vehicle. Because I I fully believe Ianthe from the moment she arrived on page had been working with Highburn. Oh yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Well, and she reminds me, I mean, she's similar to Moore. She's sneaky. Moore, not, excuse me, not more. Amarantha. My bad. Yeah. I did not say the right name. I'm talking about Amarantha. Like they they are very similar, but mm-hmm. Ianthe has the ability to hide it. And she's like, she's the snake in the grass. Yes. She's that girl who is pretends to be so nice. And then she's the one like pulling the puppet strings behind your back. Stealing your boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. She's the anti-girl's girl. Yeah, 100%. She is not a girl's girl. So yeah, so Fair is walking down this aisle. She stops when she sees the red rose petals because it's very triggering to her. She thinks it reminds her of the blood of the innocent fairy she was forced to kill. And she straight up has a panic attack and is screaming in her head, no, 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 no. But she has no idea how to get out of it. Yeah, she's like, someone help me. Someone help me. And then someone shows up and his name is Arisa M. <laughs> and he has the best line I think I think SJM has potentially ever written, which was, hello, fair, darling. Oh, the darling thing. Absolutely. Do you know about this theory? Yes, you did. You told me this, but share it for those who yes. don't know. So we, we have a few characters' as surnames. Like, obviously, we have Feyre. They're the Archeron sisters. Uh, we learned Tamlin, or not Tamlin's, but Lucian's at one point. I don't remember what it is because he does not use it. SJM has been very vocal about never, or like, if she tells us what Rhysand's last name is, it's not going to be until like the very last book. And I have a theory, and as well as many other people in the in the world this is this is not an original idea the darling is his last name and so he's just been calling her by his last name this whole time i mean it's possible i just i i hope i hope it is if i'm being really honest i hope it is because otherwise it's just gross. Like, vom. I just can't. You don't like darling of the big No. I don't know why. Maybe if somebody said it, but the way I read it on the page, I'm like, oh, I don't want anybody to call me that. Like, oh, yeah. I think I read it as like very like central, like, hello, fair, darling. Yeah, see, that it makes me like basically uncomfortable. So, Mr. Reesing shows up, which we love. Um, and he's like, guess what? I'm calling in my bargain and we're going to leave right now. And Tamlin is pissed. But he doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything. And Ianthe just scurries away. So Tamlin looks over his shoulder, sees the priestess is gone. He's like, well, fuck, no one can freaking marry us anyway. And he knows he can't do anything because if he tries to break this bargain between Feyre and Rhysand, Nothing but bad is going to happen. Rizan takes Feyre to the night court and their like initial interaction is kind of like she's pissed as hell because she doesn't trust him. Yeah, no, she because like she still thinks he's like super duper evil. And all she has heard is that the night court the under the mountain, everything under the mountain was modeled off of the night court. So she's like, you're pretty much taking me back to hell. 
to relive all of my trauma and I'm not super on board with this. Um, I do absolutely love their real first interaction in the night court, which is him calling her wedding dress ugly, which is described in book as being one of those like poofy sleeves, 80s, really ugly polyester dresses. And then she uh, gets mad at him and throws both of her shoes at him. I mean, it is like somebody saying, I mean, it, it is. It is when somebody says to you like that was a choice that you made. Choices were made, not necessarily good ones. And it's like, ooh, ooh, okay. So Feyre throws her shoes at him and his response is just interesting. And then he walks away. (laughs) I do love that kind of energy out of Rhysand in this moment. He's just like, hmm, interesting. Moving on. Uh, So she also meets, so like she goes to bed and she talks about like how great her accommodation is. She kind of like gets to see the night sky and it's like, even though they're high up in this mountain, like magic keeps it warm. Um, And so she meets more the next day and kind of just brushes more off. She's like not interested in engaging with more at all. Didn't or like run up to her and give her a hug or something like that. Yeah, Moore's like super sweet and nice to her. And Fair is just like, mm, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I mean, but think about it. It's not that like, I don't know if it's that she doesn't give a fuck. It's like, I don't trust you people. You're all like evil. She yeah. she is on high alert. Yes. So an- another thing that happens during this first visit to the night court is uh, Rhysand's like, hey, you know that second task when you couldn't read the very basic riddle on the wall? Yeah, I'm going to make you read now. We're going to teach you to read. And he teaches her to read by making her write these like absurd lines about him. Like, Reese is the best High Lord ever. And Reese is the coolest dude I've ever met. And like, it's such a dude thing to do. Like, come on. Like, so childish. But I could, like, yeah, I could absolutely see this happening. But it works. Because she doesn't fucking learn how to read. <laughs> and she doesn't learn how to write. Be- like, she does. She does learn. Um, but it is really funny to me. We also learn, because uh, Moore comes in and has a conversation with Reese, that there's this temple in the night court jurisdiction borders that was attacked. And Azrael and Cassian think that it might have been some rogue Illyrian clans. And this is the first mention we ever get of our two favorite fat boys, Azrael and Cassian. When you said that the temple was attacked, like all the priestesses, but like one were killed, correct? Because Cassian like, or was it Azrael? Azrael rescues one priestess from... Where did he take her? He took her to the house of uh, to the House of Wind because she works in the library because we meet her in Silver Flames. Her name is Gwen. No, I knew. I was I was like, I didn't know if we should give it away yet, but yeah. But like yeah. that, this is why I make this argument that like SJM does not have anything happen by accident because that's this could have been a totally innocuous situation and we never have anything to do with this ever again other than like its plot within Akamath. But like she brings this person back and this person has like significant meaning and says one of my all-time favorite lines ever from Silver Flame. And I'm going to cry about it again when we talk about it when we get to Silver Flame because I <laughs> I like I I am not somebody who cries a lot in general in life and I have a really hard time engaging with like I, I keep a lot of like fictional stories at arms like I do not like cry at movies. I don't really cry when I read books. SJM has got it got it out of me multiple times at this point. So, part of the queen uh, so during her first like little week here with Reese, Reese explains that he fully believes that there is a war coming and the wall between Perthian and the human lands is in danger from the King of Highburn. I'm going to make a note here right now. I think you need to pay attention to this for when you get to Throne of Glass. Highburn not having a first name matters. The King of Highburn does not have a name. You know, now that you mention it, I don't think I ever heard it. That's because he doesn't have one. Does that mean he's not dead? No, he's very dead. They chopped his head off. He's very dead. I was going to say, if you don't know his name, then you could, like, theoretically swap him out. Like, you just, the guy could be acting like King of Highburn, but probably not. 
just throwing it out there. Somebody is acting probably as the quote king of Highburn, but it's not a human. It's not a fae. It's a witch. It's not a witch. <laughs> not a witch. I have theories about witches when we get there too. Uh, so obviously Reese, understanding how geography works, knows that Tamlin is going to be really important if the, he's correct in this war that is coming from Highburn and the wall because the Spring Court borders the human lands. And so Tamlin touches most of the wall. He So Reese is also the first person to be like, I think... When you got that little piece of dust from all of us, that you got a, maybe a smidge of our powers. So you might have a little bit of everyone's powers. And this is going to be great or terrible because if they realize that you have it, they're probably going to want to murder fuck you. I like I don't get that because they all voluntarily gave her something in order for her to come back. So mm-hmm. I don't understand, like, I get from their point of view, she stole it from them, but they did, but she didn't. She didn't. They gave it to her willingly. I think it's more that they are afraid that she's going to use it against them in some way and that it might unintentionally make her more powerful than them. Like when we talk about like Baron, who you don't totally meet in this book, but you do officially meet in Akawar, he's terrified of her having his power. Because he knows it can get used against him. He, he, she can combine all of these powers and murk all of them. I mean, she's already more powerful than they are. And they're kind of shit out of luck anyway. <laughs> like, like, you can't take it back. And they're, the theory is that, like, if they kill her, then they get their power back. And I don't even know if that's true. I don't think it is. I, that doesn't... I don't know. I don't buy that one. They have... This whole conversation and then Feyre returns to the spring court and like literally her one little toe steps onto the spring court lands and what do you want? What do you know? Tell me everything. Seriously, couldn't be like, hi, welcome back. Are you okay? Was it really as bad as everyone says it is? It's literally like, tell me everything you know now. They like interrogate her. Come on, guys. Come on, like give her a chance to, I don't know, maybe go take a bath after a very stressful situation, like decompress. I I, I just there. I Let, let me take I, care of you. Would you like a snack? Yeah. Some fey wine? You want a bath? You want some lunch? We really love lunch here in the spring court. Would you like some? No. Pulls her into Tamlin's office and interrogates her. But during this interrogation, we get the first real sign that Feyre does in fact have some powers because she accidentally goes into Lucian's mind, meaning that she isn't a Mahdi like Reese and I wasn't surprised kind of after Reese threw out the the comment about pieces of people's power so I was like well that it just manifested so yeah I I'm not surprised that because she's she's conscious of it now so it's it's like the opposite of manifesting like once you're aware of something then then it starts happening it's like when you it's like when you buy a car and then all of a sudden you see that version of car everywhere everywhere damn it Everybody's got the same car. It's the same thing to me. Thera feels a little bit guilty about this, but like it was an accident and she doesn't ever intentionally go into Lucian's mind. So yeah, but she just doesn't seem the type of person to do that anyway. I think she said it. Yeah. She felt intrusive. It felt wrong. Yeah. And, and, and for sure, like I think the thing that I, and, and we talked about this with, with fourth wing too, is the ability to go into side of, of someone else's mind is like classic, like the most intrusive thing of like power that can exist because the one place people think is safe is inside of their own mind. Do you uh, agreed? Agreed. Do you remember a movie that came out in the 90s and it was Mel Gibson and he could read women's minds? Yes. It's called like What Women Want. Yeah. And he uses it to sleep with them for a long time. Yes. Exactly. I agree. Yes. It is insanely intrusive. Also, it's fucking terrifying. I don't want people knowing everything in my brain. No, thank you. Nope. Did you know they also made a remake of that movie, but with a woman who was able to read men's minds? That would be absolutely terrifying. No, thank you. That would be a horror movie. Horror movie. 
We're yeah, how many yeah. men are objectifying you in any given moment? You in any given We're moment. saying mean things about you. I'm that person. I say mean things about people in my head all the damn time. All the damn time. Oh, yeah. But even that, like when you're, it's like scary in other situations as well. Like what if you're in a bar and like just, mm-hmm. yeah, you can hear people that like not great people looking at you as a nice snack. No, Terrifying. You. No, thank you. Yeah. Then we have tithe and tithe is essentially like all of the people of the spring court have to pay Tamlin money for the honor of living in the spring court. Tamlin's not super into it. He does not like having to do this. Lucian at this point in time, he's just like, Hey, you know, this is really hard on him because he really doesn't like doing this. So like, let's try to band together you and me favor to help support him through this. So one of the things after she comes back from her first trip to the night court is that they just literally never talk about them getting married again. She still wears the engagement ring. I I thought that was weird. It just, they just completely dropped it. Yeah. Like it's, there's not even a discussion about it. No, like they didn't, there was nothing in the books. It was weird. I don't know. It was weird. I think, I think, well, SJM has come out and said she really doesn't like writing wedding scenes. And so that's why we don't get a lot of wedding scenes. Thank you. I appreciate appreciate that, SJM. Oh, yeah. She says they're too cheesy. (laughs) They are. They are. So I think that that's interesting that we just don't talk about it. And I think Tamlin's just feeling shameful about it. Honestly, he's like, she was going to say no anyway. I know she was going to say no. He's the abusive boyfriend or husband or partner, like, who does something fucking awful, beats the shit out of you, whatever it may be. He's not physically abusive. He's definitely emotionally and mentally abusive to Feyre. Oh, yeah. But he's not... Well, he's a little bit abusive. I was going to say, there are there are a few instances where he is. I mean, I think some of them were unintentional, but it doesn't really matter because he got no. to that point anyway. He, Yeah, he just so much reminds me of the abusive boyfriend. They're not, their relationship is not in a good place. Um, but then tithe happens. So tithe in the spring court is all of the citizens of the spring court have to pay Tamlin taxes essentially. And they have to like come parade it in front of him. He has to sit on this throne and favor has to be with him. And it's kind of weird and creepy. The spring court has some interesting traditions. Kellen my tithe. But why do they even have to do it? Cause I, I feel like, he, she was like, why do you want to do it? And he was like, I mean, it's tradition. Tamlin is not interested in looking at tradition at all. He's not willing to make any changes to anything whatsoever. This is what we do. End of story. And he's not willing to question anything. And I think part of that is because he was never intended to be the High Lord. He had two older brothers that died. His father died unexpectedly young. And he was sure. never meant to be High Lord. Yeah, but I'm not sure that that would have mattered. I feel like those in like, they're not royalty, but kind of in a sense Royal. in the way it works there. Yeah, but but it's like they have a different mentality. Like they feel like they are placed there, you know, like they, they are at least some of them. I don't think all of them are like that, but I mean, it, Tamlin... I would gather from his family, they all felt that way. That, like, this is what you do. That is just how they were all brought up. I'm not sure that any of them, just because... I'm not sure if even if he had been trained, that it would have made a difference. During Tithe, we get this really interesting scene where this water fairy comes up and she's like, I ain't got no money. I cannot pay you anything. And there's these, there's this weird, weird rule that he, she gets, like, a week and she can come back and pay or she has to pay, like a gross increased amount on her taxes. Yeah. Like it's insane. And she's like, I have nothing. There's no fish in the lake. My family is dying. We're starving. I have nothing to give you. So I don't know how you want to solve this problem. Cause I ain't got nothing. Coffers are empty. He is absolutely He has zero empathy. Absolutely none. And it's not even that he has zero empathy. He's like, well, she's a water fairy, so we can't fucking trust her because she's slimy and sneaky and devious. Uh, Yeah, but if you were a good ruler listening to your subjects and your people, like 
the fact that there's no fish in your lake should probably concern you. Where are all the fish going? Wasn't that like a line in the movie? Somewhere like, where are all the fish? <laughs> yeah, like, where are all the fish? So, Feyre is an empathetic being Mm -hmm. and so she takes this piece of jewelry off of herself and says go hawk this somewhere and pay your tithe and the water fairy is just like okay I I owe you one and walks away and everyone including Alice kind of judges her for this action they're like you probably just she's not going to come back she's not going to pay her taxes she's not going to do anything and to me I feel like this is a little bit like how people who are having to utilize social services get treated sometimes of like, Hey, like I need to be on welfare because I'm poor and I have a child and I need to take care of things or I need to be on food stamps or something like that. And the way that upper middle-class and upper-class people kind of look down on them. I would agree. Yeah. And they just have very little faith in people in those types of circumstances that they're going to do the right thing. So after Tithe, it's like another week and at lunch, because fucking lunch in the spring court is just such a big deal. I never noticed it. You're going to reread this someday and you're going to be like, Melissa's right. They do talk about lunch a lot. She has to go spend her her next week at the night court and Recent immediately notices that Feyre's not getting better. She had put on a little bit of weight when she was at the night court, but she has lost a lot of weight because she's not being able to like keep food down. And he realizes that she's also the a Damati and so he, there's a scene where like he kind of sort of lets her into his mind but then he like closes the door behind her and traps her and he's like this is how you fuck people up and like take control of them don't let this ever happen to you again always have a way out I think that's fair I mean she clearly needs help even if she doesn't see it and this is kind of I think we've talked about this at some point he, he just kind of backs off and just Mm -hmm. guides her in a little bit, but lets her do it. Reese is a man that allows these people, the people in his life to make their own choices. He presents them with options, not always all of the options, but he presents them with what he feels to be acceptable options and allows them to choose. And then he just is okay with it. Yeah. Even it's not not a choice he's super on board with. He he starts teaching her how to shield her mind to prevent him from going into people's minds, from, from other people being able to go into her mind, all of that kind of stuff. And she does get a little better, but she's only there for a week. So like, how much better can she get? You can't run up a mountain the first, uh, you know, week. No. And she, like, while she was in the spring court, she did practice her reading. So her reading has gotten better in time. Yes. And so she goes back again to the spring court and the same fucking shit happens where Tamlin and Lucian take Feyre into his office and they interrogate her. And then it becomes a bit more of a fight where Feyre's like, I have these powers. Like, let's just let's just own it. I have it. I have these powers. I don't know the extent of them, but I probably have something from every single high Lord. Why don't you just train me, like train me to use them. So I'm not a danger to anyone. And it becomes a big ass fight between Feyre, Lucian and Tamlin. Lucian is on Feyre's side. He's like, yeah, this makes sense. Like at minimum, so she can be in control and protect herself and like have ownership of her own body. And Tamlin's just like, no, all of the other high Lords will be mad and they'll try to kill you. And this is when he like unintentionally lashes out at her the first time she, she throws up a shield and that protects her. But if she hadn't thrown up a shield, it would have been real bad. And and Lucian feels terrible. Like Lucian is just like. Okay. This comes up later, but it irritated me. Like while she's at the spring court in between these night court visits, Lucian just stood there because he, because Tamlin was his high lord and he had to follow orders. And this is like another comparison to Reese is because he doesn't do that. He gives people opportunities, but also he listens 
and will take someone's opinion into account, which I think is a good quality in the leader. He doesn't always go with what they say or what they want, but he at least gives them the chance to speak. Tamla doesn't do that. It's his way or the highway. And I've only seen Reese do that like what once or twice in the entire series. Very rarely. Tamla does it all the time. And I, I appreciate Lucian a little bit here. Yeah, he, he does nothing, but he tries. He advocates for Feyre. He tells Feyre multiple times, I'm going to talk to him about it. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying. He's not successful, but I think part of that is, is mostly Tamlin just being a douchebag right now. Yeah. And... Lucian's scared. I think Lucian is as scared of Tamlin as Feyre is at this point. Yeah, because he's out of control and very unpredictable. So I agree Lucian's definitely scared of Tamlin as well because he can't control himself. He loses it. No, and who is Tamlin or who is Lucian at this point? Lucian is of the Autumn Court. This He's not even technically a member of the Spring Court. Tamlin is kind of his only friend at this point because his whole family, other than his mom, has sort of disowned him. Yeah, he's Feyre's friend, but Feyre has no no pull whatsoever when it comes to Tamlin. She's she's trapped in there. She's climbing the walls because he, if I'm not mistaken, she could barely go outside. Yeah, she couldn't leave the grounds of the manor. Yeah, I, I mean, that has to be like torture because not being able to leave somewhere and being trapped that is that is backing someone into a corner it's like putting an animal into a cage that they don't want to be in and Mm -hmm. shit's gonna go down and and lucian tries he takes her for like a horse like he takes her horseback riding at one point to try to, to try to get her to have some breath and to have some space and Tamlin's just not on board at all. And I'm like, dude, you are fucking your own life up. Yeah. And then, so after the incident in the library or in Tamlin's office, Tamlin does get better for like a, a split second, but then something happens and he and Lucian have to go take care of something. And Feyre literally She's like, I will stay out of the way. I will stay hidden. I promise. I promise. I promise. I will not get in the way. Can I please just go with you? I cannot be alone in this house anymore. And Tamlin's just like, no. She's like, well, you're going to leave and I'm just going to follow you. Like, I can't do this. Oh, God, I wish she wouldn't have said that because like, just wait. Wait till he leaves and then go. <laughs> She's traumatized. It's fine. So Tamlin's response to that is to literally create this magical ward where she can't, like everyone can leave but her. I mean, again, absolutely terrifying. Like, talk about something, like the exact wrong thing to do. She just, she went through literal hell under the mountain. She was trapped in this, you know, prison cell. And you don't think she might have a little bit of, I don't know, claustrophobia? And you won't even let her go outside because you think something's going to happen to her. If if you think something's going to happen to her, obviously, yeah, you want to continue to protect her. But train her to protect herself. This is this is kind of similar to what I see parents go through with trying to protect their kids. They love them so much and they want to protect them from every bad thing in the world. And it's, you can't, you can't do that. You can't at some point you have to let them figure it out themselves. And Tamlin, Tamlin just can't do it. Just can't do it. No. So when solution comes up to her, she's like, I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to fix this. But as soon as Lucian walks out of the house, Feyre, like, essentially explodes in the foyer to the point where, like, she melts her engagement ring off. Yeah. And we later find out that, like, Lucian got back first and he picked up the melted carcass of her engagement ring and hid it from Tamlin. Because he knew Tamlin would absolutely lose his shit. During her anxiety, panic, freak out moment, more comes and more scoops her up and walks her across the border 
of uh, of the spring court and then Reese is there and they take her back to the night court. And this is not a normally scheduled trip. No, I was so relieved when when more showed up and scooped her up because I don't know what else she could have withstood at that point. Yeah. And and it had to be done really specifically. Like Reese could not like just winnow in. He sends in more very specifically because he knows this is a very dangerous step for him and more to be taking because this opens him and the night court up to being vulnerable for Tamlin to take action against him because he's he's taking his bride away. If I'm not mistaken, my voice note to you, I was like, oh, Reese like stepped in it now he is absolutely fucked himself here comes tamlin he's gonna lose his shit they get back to the night court obviously Feyre is not doing well she's there for like all of a day and then reese she's having breakfast and reese comes down and he's like hey i gotta go take care of some stuff in another part of my lands i'm gonna be gone for a couple of days but do whatever you want here. And she stops him and she's like, please, please take me with you. And he kind of looks at her for a moment and then he's just like, I can do this. But if I take you with me, you cannot tell anyone what you see ever. And she's like, I won't. I just I please take me with you. I don't want to be alone. And he's like, okay, we'll go get ready. We're going to leave in 10 minutes. And then she's like, where are we going? And he's like, to Valaris, the city of Starlight. Wait, wait. <laughs> we get a little bit of a tour of Valaris. So he brings her in and he takes her to his town home. It's just his family home. And they kind of get a little set up and sets her up in a room. And then he takes her for a walk through the streets of Valaris. And Valaris is completely untouched. Where, like, the spring court, they were having to rebuild from shit that Amarantha did. It is like a serendipitous utopian city. Children are laughing in the streets. There's an entire artist district called the Rainbow. Like, Mm -hmm. he goes in and buys this piece of jewelry randomly because there's just artisans. And I remember her just being completely in awe of everything. Beautiful. There's a river and you can see the ocean and it's just everything about it is literally beautiful perfection. And then Reese and Faye have like their first real conversation and he opens up to her about being called Amarantha's whore and that being a very literal title that she essentially made him have sex with her every night for 50 years and part of the reason why he put himself in that situation is when Amarantha had her little masquerade party and got all the high lords under the mountain and he figured out what she was about to do he threw up these wards that prevented any of his friends from coming to help him but it ultimately prevented her from being able to find and harm Valaris and that is why he subjected himself to that trauma for 50 years and all of the things that people had to say about him. Can you imagine? No, I don't want to imagine. I think it's one of the worst things that could have happened to somebody to to essentially he was like trapped in like fairies, humans, sexual like it, it slavery like it's terrible it's absolutely terrible what amarantha did to him and it but like it's extremely noble i think oh, yeah to do that for his people but at the same time like we learn later like there are some other consequences to doing that as well. So, yeah, I, I, he he had a rough go of it for sure. I didn't have it on this nose things, but one of the times that Farah is in the night court, she also learns about what Ianthe tried to do to Reese. Yeah. She tried to also force herself on Reese and Reese 
had no part of that. He was like, fuck no, you. No, thank you. And literally like banished her from the night court and says, if you try to do this with anyone else in my court, I will end you. I will turn you into mist. Didn't she try to do this to Lucian as well? Or is that later? So she, it does happen in this book, but we don't really learn about it until Akata or Akawar because... We don't get Lucian's story about this timeline until then, until Fair has a longer conversation with him. So that is part one of Akamath. What what were your thoughts at this point? I could tell that Feyre like desperately needed to breathe. And immediately Reese and Moore were just very like, let her go at her own pace didn't push anything, didn't, they, they let her recover even like, obviously this is still kind of very early on, but you can tell that they're like very concerned about her. Everyone is concerned about her. Reese and more and like kind of the underlying theme of Akamath very much is autonomy where Tamlin took all of her autonomy away from her and Reese gifts it back to her. It's always her choice. She always has ultimate control over her own life and her what's going on in her own existence. I don't know if I would phrase it that way. To me, it's not that he gifted it back to her is that he, he just, he gave her this space for her to be able to make those choices again herself. He allowed the space to exist for her to process the shit that happens. And, and I think that's why it's so important before Feyre even opens up to him about anything is him opening up to her about like why Valaris is the way it is. And telling that piece of his story and having that piece of vulnerability with her, I'm 100% sure made Feyre feel like she could be more vulnerable with him. Because he's, that's a horrible thing to have to tell somebody. And the, the fact that he trusted her with that definitely created the beginnings of a, some kind of friendship between the two of them. Yeah. This is jumping ahead a little bit, but when they get up to the House of Wind... At the beginning of part two, he introduces this game sort of to her where it's like a truth for a truth. And I love it. I think that it is such a genuine way to connect with somebody who you know is struggling and really showing them that they can say anything to you and it's going to be okay. It's like, it's really important in my opinion to have somebody who you can tell something to and they have absolutely zero judgment. They're just Mm -hmm. there to listen. And I think that that game perfectly kind of, encapsulates that because he by going first and I mean even telling her about Valaris and the the things that he did that was an olive branch of sorts Mm -hmm. saying like hey I'm trusting you you can trust me but he's gonna have to like continue to do that he can't just do it one time. Yeah, you have to continue those kernels of of vulnerability in order to build that connection and that bridge to somebody else. Because one of the truths, the last truth that Favor gives him in that game is that her plan, like if it had hadn't been Tamlin, she would have killed herself during the third task, and that's a that's a heavy thing to admit. Honestly. I almost thought that's what she was going to do. Mm-hmm. I, I really did. I was, I mean, I didn't know what would happen. Obviously she wouldn't like die, die because, <laughs> because it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. Anybody who leaves an abusive situation like that just desperately needs to decompress and be around people who let them just exist exactly as they are. I think it's interesting too, because like 
as they're as they're getting ready to go up to the House of Wind, Favor dresses herself the way that she would have if she was still in the Night Court, which is like they always dressed for dinner or in the Spring Court, excuse me. Like they they, they always dressed for dinner and for lunch, and it was all of these things. And Reese just kind of comes out and is like normal tunic, and she's like, "Am I overdressed?" He's like, "No, you can wear whatever you want." Yeah, the casualness. I loved about the night court, the fact that they seemed like a family and not a high Lord and his subservient best friend. So they get up, they have this, this game of truths and I love that scene. And the house of wind is this, it's technically what his is supposed to be his residence in Volaris, but he doesn't stay there because it's like way above everyone. He's like, Oh no, I just want to live in my townhouse. Like, because he just, he's not the stuffy type. You know what I no. mean? He, he just wants to be the regular dude and just be himself. He doesn't want to be up in the thing looking down on everybody. That's not, it's not the type of leader he is. No, not at all. He wants to walk through the streets and say hi to people. Yeah. Like he's a very realistic, real person. And so then we get uh, the rest of what we will now f- call the inner circle. So it's more Cassian, Asriel, and Amarin. And I would love to know your first impressions of all, all of those, the, the, that wonderful trio. Well, I immediately liked the bad boys, Cassian and Asriel. Like they are hysterical, very much new girl Schmidt. And um, what's his face? Nick. Schmidt and Nick. Like just, I mean, Asriel's way more serious well, Asriel has hard, hard backstory. Yeah, I feel, but they, like, that's the thing about this book. They all do. They all have awful backstories. Like, it's terrible. But I think that's kind of the theme, though, is you, I hate this, right? And I think you said this as well the other day, like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. But it's not that simple. Like, climbing out of those dark places that a lot of them got through is difficult. It's not really picking yourself up by your bootstraps. It's, it takes a lot more than that. Like they found each other and that is why they were able to do this. Like, so Cassian's backstory is that his mom uh, was probably, she was an unwed mother and they had no money and his, his father didn't do anything. His father knew who they were because she was, he was married to someone else and he, did some things with his mom. And so Cassian essentially grew up homeless. And when he went to the Illyrian training camp, that is when he met Reese and Reese's mom and Reese's mom kind of took care of him, but he was actually there before Reese got there and had to like make his own way because the Illyrian Illyrians are like slightly different because they're the ones who have the bat wings and they have a really intense culture. And if you don't have a father, if you don't come from a family, then you, when you get to training camp, you don't get shit. So he literally had to like sleep in the snow. I, I just, that broke my heart hearing that about him. It was sad. He makes friends with Reese and gets a room for the first time in his life because Reese's mom has this, this small little cabin at the training camp. Azrael has it worse because he spends his formative years literally locked in a closet with no windows. And then his siblings burned his hands and prevented them from healing. So he has these scars on his hands. What kind of what kind of like how much like do you have to be to do that to, to do someone let alone your sibling? Like it's just like so it's fucked just up. It's awful. It's so messed up. And then we have Amrin, who is his second in command. Yes. And so Cassian is the the um the general. He's the, in charge of the military of the night court. Asriel is a shadow singer, which is a super interesting situation where he literally talks to shadows and he is constantly surrounded by them. So every time you see a description of Asriel, it usually has talks about like the shadows, like caressing him and engulfing him and being around him. Anyway, back to Amran. 
I feel like we don't yeah. know much about her at this point. Like, it just no. comes way later. But she's, like, yeah, so- fierce and scary. Yeah, she's tiny. She's fierce and scary. And her eyeballs are weird. They're, like, silvery, but they're not quite right. And so Amarin is old. Like, real, real old. And she's immortal in a way that the rest of them are not immortal. Didn't she say, like, basically, like, her immortality makes... The phase immortality equivalent to like humans. Yeah, we very, very, very later, I think in Akawar, we learned that she's like 15,000 years old. Can you imagine being alive for 15,000 years? I don't think I could handle that. No, no, thank you. No, thank you. Especially with what Amarin had been through. How would you store all that in your brain? <sighs> I feel like you forget things the way that she forgot. The writing in the book. Yeah. So they all like meet up and then they sit down for dinner and it is the polar opposite of every lunch she had in the spring court where they're all just kind of like shooting the shit. They're teasing each other. It's just fun. Because like I said, it's it's a it's family. It's a found family is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Something I want to mention about Cassian and Azrael is that they are full Illyrian where Reese is only half. So Reese had a fae father and an Illyrian mother. So that's interesting. But Cassian and Azrael have these things called siphons. All of the, the Illyrians will have them, but they have more than everyone else. They have seven. So they have them on, all over their bodies. And Cassians are red and Azrael's are blue. Because they're, they're like, they have, they're more powerful than everybody else. That dramatically more powerful than everyone else. Because for every siphon, like the more siphons you have, the more powerful you have. Because it's to help control your power. Fascinating to me. I wonder where they got their power. Like why theirs is more than everybody else's. I can't remember if that happens later in the book, but. They don't really explain it. About why they are so much more powerful than everyone else. But I think it's just, I think it's a great like comparison contrast moment between like the very tense lunches and dinners mm-hmm. that Tamlin and Lucian and Feyre would have versus this like very jovial dinner amongst mm-hmm. the inner circle. And like the type of world that Reese has created versus Tamlin. I think it's surprising to Feyre because she was like wait a minute I thought you people were like psychos because I think she's starting to see that Reese isn't but this is kind of her first exposure to all of them together so I think it's confusing to her yes she is seeing that the night court is nothing like anybody has described to her before it doesn't look like under the mountain because they're not in Hewn City. They eventually go there, but like the part that Amarantha modeled is not the real thing. And Reese talks about there being, he, he, you know, many, his hundreds of years ago, they split this court. So they have the court of nightmares, which is what everybody associates the night court with. And then the court of dreamers. And that is the city of Valaris. Essentially like, I like it, but then I also like question it a little bit because I'm like, so you're just shipping all your bad people off to under the mount, like to live under this mountain where all the shitty people are. Only the cool people get to stay in Valaris or like, how does this work? Yeah, it's an interesting choice. I don't I feel like like you said, there's no coincidences. So there must be some kind of reason for it. Yeah. I mean, in book, it's just said that like we wanted to create a new world and we got sick of fighting with all of the schmuck schmucks under the mountain, like in the Hume city in the court of nightmares. So we just created our own and they're never allowed to come here. Cause they'll mess it up. It's mine. It's ours. It doesn't belong to them. And we also learned that more is in charge and more in resand are cousins. So oh, yeah, that is that. interesting. And so she's sort of in charge of the court of nightmares. So she gets to go in there and fuck with all the people who were mean to her. And there's like weird tension between Cassie and Azrael and more. Like they're all buddies, but it's weird. Okay. Okay. Any final thoughts on this first section of a court of mist and fury? 
No, I just remember being like super excited about it because, like I said, you could tell that they gave a shit about Mm -hmm. her and they like are giving her the options and that's what she needs right now. She needs to be able to to make decisions for herself. So I was excited to see how the rest of it went. Yeah, 100. I was just sad at this point because I'm like, man, we're not going to get any Lucian. <laughs> you do get a little bit of Lucian in this book, but not a lot. Uh, because I, I love Lucian as a character. I think he's really, really interesting. I was real mad about Tamlin. I'm like, okay, now I understand why Book Talk calls him Tampon. I have interesting thoughts about Lucian, but... Uh, but I think the pacing in... Mist and Fury got so much better because we're into the world at this point and we're adding things like we learned that like money exists and toilets exist and things like that. But like the baseline world building is done and now we can just focus in on the characters. And I think that's why I love SJM writing so much because it's so character driven. You really fall in love with these people. So yeah, I I really liked A Court of Mist and Fury. I think I was not expecting this. Like, Akatar was a five-star read for me. I did not expect the story to get this much better that quickly. Kind of disagree a little bit. Akatar was, I'd say, like a three and a half stars for me. It wasn't awful, but it wasn't like, yeah, this is great. I got to download the rest of the series type thing. But we had talked about it, and you were like, you kind of got to get through the first book to get into the second one. And I really enjoyed it. And I think I said to you, like, this was much more what I was expecting. So I really, I really, at this point, liked it a lot better than Akatar. So yeah, Akatar, I would, I, of the five books, it's the one I would rank on the bottom. And then it would be Frost and Starlight. I love Frost and Starlight more than you do. I love Frost and Starlight. I think it's... I love the multi-POV. That's no, that's cool. That's cool. But, like, the story is... It's a Hallmark story. Sorry. <laughs> I know, and you hate a Hallmark movie. But I think, I think structurally within the story, having Frost and Starlight after Aqua War makes sense. Makes sense a lot. You need that reprieve before you get back into the heavy shit. You need a moment of happiness. Because, like, this shit does not exist anywhere in any of these other fucking books. We can discuss this when we get to that book, because I don't agree with you. I know. I know. You don't. Then I would say Akawar would be next after Frostbite. I liked Akawar. This is, like, ranking of favorites at this point. Like, Akawar is by no means bad. It's just not the one I identified. This this would be... Mist and Fury is number two to me because I am a silver flames girly. I love Nesta and her whole story. I really identified with it. Like, and and I feel like people are either an Akamath or a silver flames person where like you either really identify with Feyre's character growth through the lens of Frost or Mist and Fury, or you really identify with Nesta's character growth in Silver Flame. And there's they're parallel books, but they have different moving parts, obviously. No, I agree. I'm I'm a Silver Flame girly as well. If you're interested in learning more about upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us over at Instagram. It is Mel and Jill Geek Out. Or if you have a subject that you think we might want to geek out about, go shoot us an email over at Jill and Mel Geek Out at gmail.com. Uh, so thank you all for listening. This is again, this is Mel. This is Jill. And thanks for geeking out with us today. I'll see you guys next time. Okay, bye. Bye.